Hi, I'm John Finn. Welcome to Coffee Talk. Hello and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berkeley College of Music. My name's Ian and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. Today we're joined by contemporary rock guitarist and Berkeley guitar faculty, John Finn. Professor Finn is one of the first rock guitar faculty members here at Berklee College of Music, having taught here for over 32 years. He's a powerfully versatile musician, performing with the likes of Guthrie Govin, John Petrucci, to Andrea Bocelli, Demi Lovato, and is the guitar player for the Boston Pops and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Two albums of the Boston Pops he was on were nominated for a Grammy. John also records and performs with his own band, The John Finn Group. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with John Finn. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department at Berklee College of Music, and welcome to another Coffee Talk. Today we are joined, as usual, by Cheryl Bailey, assistant chair. Hey, Cheryl. Coffee cheers. Coffee cheers. I've got Cheryl's brew, Cheryl's famous espresso, office espresso, executive coffee, like we call it, in my cup. Um, we've got Ian Steed, our senior coordinator. Hey, Ian. Good morning. Hey, everybody. <laughs> oh, is that tea? Andy, you have tea? It is. Yeah, I'm teeing it up. I already had like two cups today, so. <laughs> yeah, we're in that crunch time. That's right. End of March. <laughs> yep, here we go. And then we've got John Finn, professor of guitar with us as our special guest today. Hey, John. Hi, hi, hi there. Uh, so today, unfortunately, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an avid coffee, coffee drinker, but at the moment I've got iced tea, unsweetened, oh, by the way. Nice. So, that's good. Sure. Yeah, you have to say that. In the when you're talking with people with in the south, because up here we just make tea and then you add the sugar. But in the south, when it I realized they don't do that, they, it, the sweet tea, they make it when it's hot. They put the sugar in, so then the sugar melts and it doesn't get on the bottom. Of wow, that. it's really brilliant. It's quite yeah. smart. Yeah, I think I, I think you're right. There's like a whole di whole thing with like drinks and temperature. Yeah, yeah, and with the sugar. Um, our former president, Roger Brown, we were at a conference one time and, and um, he, he and I snuck in the back and he showed me how to make a proper sweet tea out of conference supplies, which I thought was like very MacGyver of him. Yes, yes, and that's right. And there's honey packets involved and really hot water and like there's a timing thing. Yes. So it's, it's a whole different experience than a cold, unsweetened iced tea. Yeah, and you know, it's funny that you say that, I, you know, uh, about five or six years ago, um, I, I did a trip to Casablanca in Morocco, hmm. and uh, was was staying with a, with a, with a couple of guys there, and they explained to me how Americans ruin coffee by by making it too hot, and you know what he was saying was you have to make it hot, but you can't boil it. If you boil it, it ruins the flavor because it burns the coffee beans. So there's the tie-in for coffee. Anyway, so <laughs> that's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I, I learned something in that trip. I like that. That's yeah. great. That's great. Um, so, John, we're going to talk cover a lot of ground here because a lot of people know you as a rock guitar player. Many other people know you because you've taught at Berkeley for so long. You've 
been the teacher of many, many teachers and mm-hmm. uh, and players in the world. You also play with the Boston Pops and um, most recently with the Boston Symphony, mm-hmm. um, going to Carnegie Hall with them. And so you have that type of experience as well. So you have this breadth of experience across many things. And so we'll get to that. We kind of get in and out of it. Um, but one of the first things that um, people who are listening are experiencing is like, first days at Berkeley, like firsts at Berkeley, first experiences. And um, I'm wondering if you could think about some of, it could be a first day when you were a teacher. It could be a first day when you were younger, um, a first day when you're starting something new, a new project or a new, you know, maybe when you became full-time, full professor. But can you think of a first for you and then give us some impressions that you remember about that time? Well, okay. So when I, uh, it's actually it's like you actually brought up a couple of things. When I first went to Berkeley, um, I had I had grown up in in this in this little suburb called Westwood, and um, you know, for just I didn't realize it at the time, but there was a lot of really good guitar players, um, you know, in 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 the town I grew up in. Just a lot of music, really strong um, music program. And um, and while I was in high school, I kind of got the reputation as as sort of being the guy. And of course, at the time, my ego ran away with me about that. So, but by the time I got to Berkeley, you know, my thing, my my impression of it was, okay, I'm I'm going to go to Berkeley College of Music now, and I'm going to show everybody how it's done because I'm just so amazing. So then I I got there. And, uh, you know, she started meeting people and just sort of telling them how great I was. And, and then, you know, it's, and then I, I met this, this guitar player and just, and I just asked him, Hey man, you want to sit and jam for a few minutes? And he's like, yeah, man, I'd love to. So, uh, the guitar player, his name was Jamie Glazer. I don't know if you know who he is, but at the time he, uh, he, he was, you know, probably one of the strongest student guitar players at Berkeley. Um, you know, after graduated Berkeley, went on to, to, to tour with like a lot of major art, artists. Anyway, he was just such a ridiculously good, like a, just a monster of a player and a super nice guy. And I knew within about four seconds of playing with him that I was so far outclassed it wasn't even funny. And it wasn't he wasn't making it a competition. It was just obvious that I was just way out of my league um, trying, trying, trying to function with this guy. So it was like the worst and best experience of my life because he was so nice to me and so encouraging, you know, and it was clear within like three and a half seconds that I was so far behind the eight ball and I had so much work to do. So... You know, I, I uh, so my, my ego was just 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 cut to the quick, like immediately. And then every day after that, I just kind of tried to show up and just say, OK, teach me. I'm a beginner, you know. And what's cool. Sorry, that's my uh, that's my laptop t- telling me that there's an issue. I'll turn that off now. But um, yeah, so that so so that that was my uh, first experience at Berkeley. Um, can you can you talk? Talk a little bit about that, though. I like that your response was that you became like full in student mode, right? Because in the moment, your response must have been a bit of shock and 
I mean, how did you, what happened when that happened? I know it's like in your mind, cemented in there. Like you kept playing, right? What did you do when you realized? Well, or maybe what do you advise people to do? Because I know that someone is saying to themselves, oh my gosh, that happened to me yesterday. Or what if that happens to someone today? What do you advise them to do when, when they feel that way? Well, I, I okay so yeah and that that that's that's a fair point because um, it took me a long time to get comfortable with the idea that I will never really think of myself as a good musician me you know and and the, you know the reason for that is very simple it's like if you're if you're close enough to a Monet painting to to, to be able to reach the, the, the painting with the with, with a paintbrush then all you see is the brush strokes right so uh, if you're the person you know so when I'm listening to myself play uh, all I hear is the stuff I lo- don't like and the stuff I want to change and other people are listening to me say yeah man you sound great and what's so interesting is that both points of view are right meaning you know uh, meaning I'm so close to it that that all I'm gonna see is the brush strokes you know so the good thing for me, for me to there is to continue to do that work, but also take take a few minutes and step back and try to enjoy it, you know. But also take, but also not take into account too seriously, you know, when somebody else says, "Oh man, you're the, you know, you're 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 amazing," and you you know you're, you know, like I I, I think so that that that's one part of it. Um, I don't know if I'm really answering the question the way that you want yet. Um, okay, so what to do? Uh, at the time I, I just went to full on, like, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm just going to practice my brains out because I, I just felt like I was just so far behind everybody else that I was just going to have to, you, you know, succeed by brute force really at the, you know, and, um, and I just got used to, you know, the idea that I would never like what I hear when I'm practicing, but know that if I keep at it, that eventually uh, I'm going to conquer that and I'm going to get better at it, knowing that it's uh, there's always going to be more to, to, to work on. I don't know if that makes any sense, but... It does. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I, I think one of the things that... Uh, well, okay, so he, this also plays into it. I've got a close friend who's one of the most naturally gifted musicians I've ever met. Okay, but he... When he, if any, if he encounters anything that's at all challenging, like he just won't work on it because it's just it's just too frustrating to him. He just won't do it, you know. But if it's easy for him, the things that come naturally and easy just flow out of him like it's nothing. And my experience with guitar has always been everything is hard to do. <laughs> so I've just got used to working hard, I guess. So uh, my advice to any to anybody that wants to um, do, do music professionally. Um, I, I, I think, a, a strong work ethic goes a long way, you know, what, whatever it is that you, you know, start with what it is you want to be able to do and then assemble a steps, a series of steps to, you know, get from point A to point Z. You know, I think that's really interesting. And I, I wonder my guess, and you can tell me what you think is that this is one of the things that's helped you become so good in many different contexts because I think that sometimes when people come to Cheryl and I and they know your rock guitar playing you know they know like they know who you are and they come to school to study with you as a rock guitar player 
they're also surprised to know that your knowledge of harmony and arranging and composition can help them in other styles. Yeah. You have this really deep knowledge of what we would consider jazz harmony mm -hmm. and how you, how you listen to it, how things fit into your playing, how things fit into your compositions that they're not, they can't really be pigeonholed in one style there. You can tell that you have a lot of influences. And then on top of that, I think they're really surprised to hear that you can follow a conductor that you can pick up a nylon string guitar and play with the Boston Symphony like you just did. You just played Alban Berg's opera. Yeah. And you can play with the pops and play electric guitar, but you're following classical arrangements. So you're really reading. I mean, I think when people say to me, like, okay, I need to work on my reading, and I say, well, you should consider talking with John Finn because he's one of the most monstrous readers I've ever met in my life. Um, they sometimes we'll think like, oh, well, you're a rock guitar player. And so it's like, I think what's interesting is that it seems that your curiosity about music and your work ethic have helped you expand all the things you can do stylistically. Do you think that's one of the things that has helped you do that? Well, yeah, it's, it's uh, okay. So the, uh, I, I think the biggest thing that jumps out for, for me is probably the curiosity, you, you know, um, it, you know, because it, in, in my head, what I always think about is one of the reasons why I'm good at a lot of different things really has to do with a short attention span. You know, I'm like, I'll practice things up to a certain point and then I just, just become interested in something else. And you know, the truth is, um, you, you know, I, I might be a good reader and, you know, what, what guitar players, most guitar players may consider a good reader, but um, I've worked with the symphony players, uh, you know, a lot. Those folks are monstrous readers. I mean, I, that's, that's another level that I, I'm nowhere near. Um, you know, I, I can tell you that, at least as far as the reading goes, uh, I, I, I did have some, I, I played uh, string bass in high school. Uh, so I, I, I played in, in, in the orchestra. It was only because they didn't, they had a string bass and they didn't have anybody to play it. And I wanted to play in the orchestra. So I just kind of said, well, I'll, I'll give it a whirl. And I, I wasn't very good, but uh, I did learn how to read you, uh, and, and follow a conductor in that setting. You know, so that was really good training. So by the time I got to Berkeley, I kind of recognized that I could read, but I couldn't, and I could play guitar, but I couldn't do both at the same time. So one of my goals was to kind of integrate those two kinds of uh, of worlds. Um, I can tell you that I I didn't really become a strong reader until it was clear to me that my career wasn't going to advance until I did that. Um, and, I, and I think that that's like anything else. It's like, you know, I always hear students, I'm going to practice reading two hours every single day. And, and now Bill Levitt recommended that I practice reading five minutes a day. And his reasoning for that was that if you give it five minutes of good, concentrated work, that that's actually worth quite a lot. Um, and, and, and he was right that... You, you know, if you're really doing a cold sight reading, that's that that's an awful lot of mental energy uh, dedicated to a task. You know, that's that's one of the things I think that gets missed a lot when people watch musicians read is you'll see them be kind of still with, you know, with either the French horn or the oboe or whatever, 
you know, and they're just kind of doesn't look like they're doing a lot, but mentally there's a lot going on, you know. So um, that so just being exposed to that word I think really helped me with just getting better at that because it's just a model that you can kind of aspire to. You know, it's interesting that you say that because um, I learn a lot by watching people go through their process. Yeah. And we had a chance, you and I, to sit together and you had some pieces. You had a Piazzolla piece you were looking at and you were looking at the opera. And just watching the way that you went through the score and looked yeah. at it. And because it wasn't just that you were assessing, like, what is this note and where does it go? You were stepping back and looking at the whole picture and seeing, like, where does this picture fit? Like, where do these gestures fit on the instrument? Right. But then also for the Berg, it was like, what's going on all around me? Yes. Because there's going to be these moments, and these for, moments could be an hour where you sit and you don't do anything. And then so, you know, when we were talking about it later, like linking up with the tuba player, like realizing like, oh, that is the guy that's going to give me my note when I come in. And, and just having that sense where you can sit there confidently and not freak out. Because right. you have enough, it is really leading with curiosity in the beginning because you're not just saying like, okay, where can I put this on this grid of the fretboard to make it sound good? But also like what's happening around me so I know when to play. Right. And and with a piece like that, the, the entire piece is over, it's about an hour and a half, I think. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I mean, it, it doesn't matter if you if you know the music if you don't know when it comes because if you don't know when to come in, you know, it's. I mean, there's 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 a there's a great uh, TV old TV commercial where um, where, where this this man and a woman are sitting across uh, from each other at a restaurant, and she turns to him. She's got these loving eyes. She goes, "I love you," and then she looks at him, and he like staring back at her, and then staring back at her. And finally, her like her face falls, and she gets up and she leaves. And then after she leaves, he goes. I love you too. <laughs> and then the caption underneath it is timing is everything. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, uh, I mean, that, that's a, that's a pretty good illustration, I think. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned the tuba player. When we got to Carnegie hall, the guy who normally plays uh, a tuba for Boston symphony orchestra wasn't able to play that show. I, I, I don't know what happened. Um, you know, maybe he was ill or something. I'm not sure. But uh, when we got to the concert, I I, I learned that the uh, that the tuba player who plays for the uh, New York Metropolitan Opera was going to come in and sub for that. You know, for, for for this performance, which is a little scary because it's an hour and a half's worth of music, and he's more or less sight reading. Where the other guy, who was a world class tuba player, had been preparing this piece for over a month mm-hmm. you know so and the guy that came in I, I i still don't know his name but he he did an incredible job but it was really scary for me because as you were saying earlier you know a lot of the guitar parts were lined up in some in some points with the guitar with the tuba like there's a couple of places where the tuba would go boom 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 and then i would play a chord like immediately after so I would just kind of wait for the tuba lick and then play the chord, right? So now this here's a guy who's like sight reading and he's doing a great job, but it's now, you know, I'm like kind of going, okay, is he going to get it? Is he going to get, it? ah, you know, so, you know, <laughs> right. he, yeah. he, he, did, he did great. 
But you know what's um, the other side of that? That's actually kind of amazing. Yeah, you're you're waiting for that part, and what if it doesn't get played? And then so you really you really have to know where you are in that part. But you know, so so many times I'm I'm sure this happens to everybody here. I was like, do you play a performance? And you are sight reading, or you've never met the band before. Right. And people will be like, oh my God, that's so epic. And it's, thank you. Thanks. I appreciate that. But that's what were the skills you build up so that you can come in and sight read something on a high level like that. That's what we're, that's what we're developing here, right? Yeah. And, and the average person, or, you know, maybe you're playing and someone comes up and takes a glance at your music like oh that's all happening on that page or you know like the the con there's sort of this mysticism about it but it's it's really just good old-fashioned musicianship to be able to do that and and you know that guy came in he's that's what he's spent his life doing is to be able to come in and do that very intense i mean it's that and everyone should know it is a you know not a tonal piece of music so it's not even like i'll get the five chord like <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. um if if you're not familiar with the piece it's a german language opera uh written in the in the atonal style similar to schoenberg where uh you know atonalism is is the idea that that, that no one chord or note or tonality has any more weight than anything else so um you know, so the whole idea of chord progressions that lead you to the subdominant, to the dominant, to a you know any kind of a one chord, just doesn't happen in the music. Um, there are moments that sort of imply that, but they're really you know, but the rug is taken out, uh, t- taken out from under you like pretty quickly, you know, and that's kind of the, the part and parcel of the style. And this piece in particular um, does a beautiful job of maintaining that atonality. And uh, is is able to convey quite a lot of um, emotion. I mean, it, it, what's interesting is that it's a German language opera, and yet I find myself like getting choked up, like towards the end when, you know, like when all this tension starts to, you know, it's just beautifully written. Yeah, I mean, I love music that's polytonal or atonal because then the, all the intervals matter. You know, all the colors of the space between the notes and the way you put them together, they take on a different meaning of their own. Yes. And I love the possibilities with that. Um, and the other part about it that's interesting, like when you're, um, which leads me to my next question is when you're playing with the symphony, it's also like you have to play what is written. There's not like a, an improvisation option for the most part. Like you've got to play your part. Well, it for guitar, it it really depends on the piece because mm-hmm. that's that's true with most. Uh, let's see. Well, most of the things I've done with the symphony um, involve very little improvisation. Um, right. With the pops, that's kind of a mixed bag. It it, it kind of depends on who wrote the piece and how much they know about guitar. Right, and so I guess that brings me to my next question, which is, even in the symphony context depending on if you're with the symphony or the pops. And then when you move out of that, you've had to find a way to figure out like what kind of sensibilities to playing and the way that you present yourself work for those situations. Like I have another friend who goes back and forth between classical music and popular styles. And he calls it like code switching almost like, how do you present yourself? How do you play? Like, what is your tone? Like, like, what is it? How did you develop that? Like, 
I mean, obviously you're looking at what's being called for, but you've become very known really and very good at going oh. back and forth stylistically. Well, uh, okay. So I, I would say that a lot of it for me has been very Pavlovian. Uh, I, you know, I'll give you an example. The, you know, like one, one of the first recording sessions I did with the, with one of the first experiences I did with the Boston Pops was a recording. And, um, so, so uh, I'm trying to think, like the first piece I played with them, I think I had to wait like maybe 45 bars and then just play an A minor chord, you know, at the beginning of bar 46 or something like that. So it wasn't like it was hard, but I, I just had to get the chord on the downbeat. So, you know, so, so I'm watching Keith and he's counting four and I'm like, you know, 43, two, three, four, 44, two, three, 45. Okay, here it comes, uh, three, four. 46 and I play the downbeat on 40 on, on 46 and I am like like like, like a like a fraction of a second ahead of everybody else and there was like a hundred pairs of eyes looking back at me going oh there's the rookie here's his first day right so you know so of course they you know they they you know they they they, they stopped the recording and said, okay John you're a little bit early and I very quickly learned that in a symphony, um, the conductor gives a downbeat, and the beat literally washes across the, the 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 orchestra. And you have to, as a guitar player, you know your your tone has a very sharp attack compared to other instruments. So you kind of have to wait for the note to kind of uh, balloon in, and then you hit kind of in the middle of that. So your concept of time becomes, I would call it, much wider with that situation. But again, it's if, if you're in the situation, it's obvious to you. I can sit here and tell stories all day, but it, you know, like when you actually experience it for yourself, it's like, oh, okay, I know yeah, what to do now. That is totally true. I remember the first time I experienced that playing with string and wind players. Like we really hit the beat on the beat. Like we like, it's so fast. And they can't do that. They they because they have to. When you think about it, you have to start the bow or you have to start your breath. Right. And if there's a hundred of them, you know, now you're really early. Well, and not only yes, not only that, but the but uh, I I also learned that in 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 string sections, that it's it, it's um it, it's it, you break etiquette if you if you're not the concert master and you play ahead of the concert master. So the violins are always looking at the bow of the concertmaster and trying to play just slightly after where they play, you know, because because they're it's it's bad it's bad etiquette to play in front of the concertmaster. So you know that exacerbates that. So what's interesting is that is that modern orchestra conductors know this. In fact, you know Keith Lockhart actually has a technique that he does where what he'll do is he'll he'll give a slight motion up here no i'm sorry he'll give the downbeat and then he'll give like a slight up motion right afterwards and his reasoning for that is that this is for the strings and that's for the percussion so if he's if he's if he's going uh two three four he'll go bon, two three four and so the percussion is to following his slight up motion you know, which which actually kind of helps with you know with with getting the timing a little bit more precise. Wow, you know, th yeah. there's a lot of lot of little things like that. Yeah, 
That's so, really fascinating that like you would have such a sophisticated sense of time to be able to hear that in your head. Right? Exactly. Like um you know um uh the former chair of the ear training department uh was uh on this podcast and he said something really similar that it, like when he wrote something someone said I can tell what you hear by looking at what you wrote and by you talking about how, how like that slight motion and the difference like what an incredible sense of hearing and understanding of time that you would be able to like sense that in the sound and also like evoke that in your hand that's heavy man yeah well you know it's it's like anything it's like if you put if if you i think anybody who was put in that situation would eventually figure it out you know and i think i was just lucky enough that i was given enough opportunities to 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 do it wrong that i eventually figured out how to almost get it right Right, because in a way, it's like what we're talking about with that style, it's absolutely required. Like, it has to be precise. There's no, it's just like, it's not like, oh, if you're great at it, you do it this way. It's like, no, that is actually the requirement of the music. That's what the music needs. That's, that's, That's true. And also with the pops, one of the things that they do that most people don't realize is that when they rehearse a piece, um, you know, like if they're doing a piece in a concert, uh, we will run it down once at rehearsal, and that's it. And and what happens is we'll we'll play the piece down, uh, and then Keith will typically just kind of make a few comments about about what he wants to be different, and then you're just expected to have it together that night. Wow. You yeah. Know, so, yeah. So there's no rep- repeating it six or seven times the way. You know, uh, the way a smaller band would, and and a lot of it is just because of expense. It's it's expensive to rehearse them. Right, that's right. When I was a kid, like Boston Symphony in the summer resides at Tanglewood, and I grew up near Tanglewood. Yeah, and um, they had like a you know like a dress rehearsal on Sunday mornings, and or Saturday mornings for the Sunday show or something like that, yep. and that's when and they're just gonna run through, and it was Seiji Ozawa at the time when I was a kid, and. He would wear like a lot of linen, you know, and he would be dancing around and they were just doing that like for fun. But all the kids, you could come up on this, you could come right up. Like if you were little kids and, and he he loved it. Like you couldn't get on there with them, but you could get right up right. to it. And watching everybody just in that mode of being precise, but looking really casual about it, you know, like being in like shorts and t-shirts and jeans and stuff was like, I think that was the most powerful musical experience for me was like, this is just what these people do. Yes. You no, know, it just becomes like part of your intuition. All of these things we're talking about. This is like, this is what we do. I, I thought that was unbelievably. Yeah. The folks, powerful. the folks who were the contract players uh, for the Boston Symphony are some of the hardest working musicians I've ever encountered, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, and it's, you know, the thing that's, that, that's important to remember. One of the things I that, that I learned, you know, is I would watch them play a a, uh, a symphony concert, and I would look at the looks in their faces, and some of them would just kind of look bored. Right. And, and I realized after working with them, it's not boredom; it's exhaustion. Yeah. You you know, like they work a lot. You know, yeah. I mean, I think they pay play something like two hundred seventy concerts a year, some insane number like that. It's unbelievable. You know? Yeah. 
and they're long. Those concerts are long, you know, like, yeah. And they're not all the greatest hits either. They're playing no. a lot of new stuff, you know, yes. all the time. It's amazing. Um, so for you, when you, you know, you must have a certain approach to your sound and your tone, given what the demands are of your pops and your symphony playing. And then when you do other things, when you're playing rock music, you have like, like, is it completely different? your concept of your sound? I mean, obviously it's different because it's a different style. It's different demands, but how do you think about like your sound of your playing in well, those okay. different contexts? There's a few considerations. Okay. So what, one consideration is how much room do I have? <laughs> okay. Because you know, there are some concerts, uh, you know, there, there, there's been, a, um, you know, th I show up to some gigs, you know, and, and they give you like, a, you know, a postage stamp worth of um, stage real estate to be, able to, to, to be able to occupy. And if you carry more than that, there, there just isn't room for it. So, so um, you mean like physical room, not like cosmic room? No, like no, no, no. no. I, I just you mean, mean like space. Yeah, exactly. So, so in other words... You know, I've played some concerts where where the, where the music calls for nylon string guitar, a uh, steel string guitar, twelve string guitar, electric guitar, hollow body electric guitar, banjo, ukulele, right? Um, and, and then you know, look at the amount of space I have in the stage, and there just isn't room to carry all the amplifiers and guitars needed to be able to get in there. So. At that point, it's a conversation with either the you know either the contractor or the stage people for like okay, how much room do I have, and, and you know what what instruments can I get away with not bringing if I can't if I just can't bring them all, you know that that's something that comes up a fair amount. Um, if I've done a you know do, doing some of the concert tours with the pops, most of the time the venues are big enough that I can just bring whatever I want. So in those instances, I'll bring five or six guitars, two or three guitar amplifiers, uh, you know, a pedal board, and just a pretty pretty elaborate, um, you know, thing. Now the other th consideration, of course, is how much time do I actually have to set up? You, you know, um, because in the touring uh, scenario, we're done with the concert, and you have to get you you have to get changed and on the bus. Um, within a certain amount of, you know, changed, packed up, and then on the bus within a certain amount of time. Otherwise, the bus is leaving because they, they don't wait for you if you're not on the bus because there's, you know, there's a, typically 130 people in the, in the troop, you know, for, for, for them. So they, they tell you when they're leaving and you just got to be on the bus or you're finding your own way. So there, there's that. Um, with my own gigs... You know, I, I tend to be a little bit more, uh, I, I, I tend to bring more gear just because it's kind of, I, I, uh, I, I'm representing myself more than I'm representing somebody else. I'm, you know, if it's my own gig, then I'm more the center of attention. So I, I really want to get all the tones like exactly right, you know, so I've got, I've got a concert rig that I use for that, um, for, you know, for, for my electric guitar stuff. What what are you doing now that's really exciting to you? Like what what's kind of making you really inspired right now about stuff that you're playing? Uh, well, right right now, uh, well, 
my wife Julie and I just wrapped up a production of a Bonnie Raitt tribute record that's going to get released uh, next month. I'm really excited about that. Uh, we're going to do a few, a few gigs on that um, coming this spring, and then um, we're going to go right, head right back into the studio and record some more stuff for my, you know, for for John Finn Group for a new John Finn Group record. So that's has always been, you know, that band's been together since 1988, and has always been um, never been a big money maker, but has always been a passion project, a lot of fun to do, and. You know, it's interesting because you can go almost anywhere in the world and there's like two people in that area that know who we are, <laughs> but never more than two. <laughs> two is good. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Good. yeah. <laughs> two is good. So, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, John. No, that's it. That, that's it. I mean, uh, you know, like that. Um, you know, that is always my, my, uh, my, my, my favorite thing to do is to just write my own music and then try to arrange it with, uh, you know, with, 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 with that group of people and just learn to play it, allow it to sort of evolve, perform it, record it, that whole process. I love that. Oh, that's great. Um, Hey Cheryl, what are you thinking about? Oh, there were a couple things. Um, one thing you said right at the beginning, which is, I mean, we all have to learn this, and I'm saying this to students all the time, is to trust the work, right? You're saying right when we started talking about that process, you know, because everybody want you want to be you want to be especially students at Berkeley, you you just want to be a great player tomorrow, but there's a process of it, yes. and 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 there are just certain things like I believe your ear and your and time, you can't fake them. But you also can't force them like they develop as they're going to develop and everybody's different. So you have to trust the work. So you do the work, you work hard and you have to trust it and you can trust it. That's what I'm always saying too. you can trust the work, but when you're working hard, but which also the other thing that you're saying about William Levitt and it'd be interesting for you to talk about um, some of your experiences with William Levitt. Um, But, you know, he said like, well, just read five minutes a day. Right. And, and that's the other thing I think is so important because people will say, oh, I, well, I read two hours, but they'll, you know, that you can't keep that up. That's not a realistic schedule no. of what you're going to do. And to do it daily is the most important thing because that's how your brain wires and learns is, to, it, and it doesn't have five minutes a day. If you can commit to that, you start that as your habit and you develop it, then right. you could do 10 minutes. But, you, you know, I, I had a friend who, a writer, who had writer's block and went to this guru about it. And the, and, the, and the exercise was to find some amount of time that you could honestly commit to and every day go and write. And, and she did that for, and I think she said she could commit to 10 minutes. And, and she did it every day. Like she m- might have even gone to bed and forgot to do it. And she'd get out of bed and go down and write. And she said then after she established that habit, she could do 15 minutes. And then she finished her novel. But it's that thing of establishing that habit, the way our our bodies are, and our minds are wired. And you just start there. Instead of, you know, I think that's the thing. People set this. And then they don't can't do that you can't do two hours a day so then they're like oh i'm not gonna do it anymore right (laughs) right and and i think i i think what you uh for me it was it has been learning to 
be comfortable with listening to myself sound terrible when I practice. Because if I sound if I sound good when I'm practicing, I might not need to practice it. Right? If yeah, I, that's what somebody said. Uh, somebody said if you if you sound good when, when you're practicing, you're doing it wrong. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know, you, you know, see, and, and it's funny because some, somebody who doesn't know what we're talking about, that's going to sound really counterintuitive. You know, it, it kind, of, kind of what it means is, is that, uh, okay, so, so when I was working on this, uh, you know, the, the, the thing where, um, you know, Kim was talking about, um, you know, the, uh, her and I getting together and, and working on some things, what happened was I got hired to... Uh, play a classical guitar piece um, accompanying a friend of mine's daughter who plays violin. You know, so when, when he asked me to do it, I thought, oh, yeah, how hard can it be, right? And then, you know, and of course, I was utterly proved wrong. Like, the, you know, I was, I looked at the music and just very quickly realized that this was much more than I thought I was actually, you know. So, I mean, the truth is, I, you know, I went to Kim and went, You know, and, you know, she just kind of talked me away from the cliff and said, OK, well, here are some of the things that you could look at, <laughs> you know. And but but in the beginning, I, I was just, you know, practicing it and practicing it and just not getting anywhere with that. And that's really uncomfortable, you know, and I, I think the best advice that Kim gave me was. You know, she told me to stop thinking of it like the like a classical guitar piece, and think of it more like the kind of tune that you would play in a club, and try to hear it that way. And and when I was and, and she was hundred percent right, which because what that did was that kind of uh, caused me to get back to uh, more of a uh, a mindset of thinking about how the music should sound, instead of really getting in the weeds and talking about you know, like the deep classical guitar. See, that's, you know, like Kim is known far and wide for having extraordinary guitar, uh, classical guitar technique, which is why I went to her because, you know, I had a bunch of technical questions that I, you know, that I wanted to ask and she just kind of got straight to, okay, yeah, this is the way you want to approach this. So, you know, I, I think, you know, for me, it's, 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 it's a learning to be comfortable with, you, you know, doing things that sound terrible while you're working on them Two, and this is a more, you know, ask for help when you need it, you know, because there are people around you that are willing to help you if you ask, you know? Yeah. So, you know, some of that is about perspective because it's interesting that you say that, like the piece that you're talking about is uh, it's the history of the tango by Astor Piazzolla and it's an arrangement of Piazzolla. So Piazzolla wrote music for, clubs and four groups that improvise and and you know they're virtuosic bands but there's a lot to them and then there are these beautiful arrangements um of four pieces called the history of the tango then they're really hard classical guitar parts right and i and but they don't come from that so a lot of the problems with some of the classical interpretations is they don't sound enough like what they really are right and and what i think is really interesting is that when you said, John, like you were asked to play that, I thought, well, that makes total sense. Like, first I thought, wow, that's a really hard part. And number two, I thought, like, to, to pull off in a short amount of time. But number two, it's like, it makes total sense because you have all the sensibility of the original that a classical musician 
who's just like trained classical guitarist wouldn't have. That would be their challenge with it, would be to try to capture that. But I think what I think is interesting is sometimes when we're looking at something that we find difficult, all we see is what we don't have. And so it blinds you to what you actually have. Right. Because like a lot of people on the other side, like, you know, when I was playing those pieces, I needed to go to my friends from Argentina and say, like, help me feel this properly. Like, help me see where this has to be super clean or where it has to be a little more streetwise or where the beat goes. But it, it took a minute to be able to ask them. Right. Because I knew I had the chops and I could read to play the thing, but I felt embarrassed that I didn't know like where, what the sensibility of the original was like. And then they were saying, well, how did, how would you know though? You know, you grew up in Western Massachusetts. Like you guys, you didn't really, you weren't really steeped in that, right? right? How would you know? And that's the thing. Like if you play more on that side and then you're coming to the classical arrangement of it, how would you know what you need to keep? Right. All we, and I think it's good to remember that it's it's really normal to see what you don't have and then if you ask for help sometimes what you get is perspective that you have more than you think and that that was that was true to some degree um you know in my case preparing for the you know for this concert um you know but at the same you know but at the same time it was just enormously helpful to you know to to just kind of sit with somebody else and have them watch me do what I do and have the expertise to point out a bunch of things that I hadn't thought about so and also have the courage to do that too I, I think it's surprising sometimes to younger players that we're all doing that you know we're 20 years older than them or 30 years older than them or more years older than them and it's hard for them to imagine that yeah you know what you never really you don't get to the point really where you don't have to do that if you're doing new things. Bill Levitt once said to me that he was, he was like in his late seventies at the time when he said it, he told me that he felt more like a beginner now or at the time that he did when he started. And that at the time, you know, I, it was very hard for me to wrap my head around that possibility because he was the chair of the guitar department. He'd written those, all, all, all those modern method guitar books and you know he was he was running the guitar department at the time pretty much with an iron fist from what I could see, um, and uh, you know so for him to say something like that it was just like okay I can't and and then he showed me a book written by George Van Epps called Harmonic Mechanisms for Guitar I don't know if you're familiar with that but you know there's three volumes of that and uh, you know it really you know at the time it was really next level stuff for for me if 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 you I'm going to tell you something. If you think you know chords, buy that book, and I'll see you in about a hundred years. <laughs> it's a ridiculous. It's a ridiculous book. I love. I love that you said that about Bill because, like, when I when I got here as assistant chair, um, you know, a lot. I was a different style than anyone else yeah. who'd ever been there, and I was, you know, you know, nobody. I didn't come from Berkeley, so I thought, well, I'm a really good student. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask people to show me things, right? And um, which sounded like a great idea to me because I really do want to learn about things. But then I would get to these like hangs or lessons. And then there's this part of me that was like, oh, my God, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're supposed to be the assistant chair. Like you're just going from room to room <laughs> showing people that you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and there would be these moments where, you know, when someone shows you something and you really, you're like, 
oh my god like i've never thought about that before and then you know you get that fight or flight thing and then i'd yeah. have to tell myself like you cannot run away you you have a you have a job title like you can't run away you have to stay here and work yeah, but, it out like but you know everybody knew that that's what you were doing you, right. you know what i mean so yeah. don't, so i don't think anybody <laughs> i mean i i understand how that thought goes off in your head you know because we you know we all have that you know there's a there's a great far side cartoon where there's this elephant holding a flute in the middle of a symphony orchestra. <laughs> and he's like, his thought bubble is saying, what am I doing here? I don't play flute. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah, it's all good in theory. I think it's good to know that it's going to feel uncomfortable. You know? Yeah. yeah. I, I played with one of our colleagues and uh, we, we, uh, we did a lesson. We each taught each other. And then it was like a month later where we realized that we both would, we each had gone home to our respective homes and cried. Like, right, right. it's like, you know, so I think it's okay. Like, I think it's a good message to send out there that, you know, you're always going to feel uncomfortable when you don't know something, but that's how you grow. You just keep growing that way, right? That's right. Yeah. The growth is just outside your comfort zone. That's right. Right. Um, Ian, this sounds like a good time for you to hop in and ask a question. Yes. So uh, here's the thing that we ask everybody on this podcast. Okay. Which is, what is like a question that a student should be asking that they might not think to ask or something they should be thinking about that they might not even have on their radar? That's a good question. Uh, I think, you know, Berkeley is, Berkeley College of Music is, is one of the most comprehensive music education institutions um, in the world, as far as I can tell, you know. Um, I, I mean, there's any, just about anything musical-related, um, with, with few exceptions, if you think about it, are, are pretty, pretty well represented across the board. So that means that, you know, as a student, you open up the course we're offering brochure, and you just start to realize that there's, like, all this stuff that you could learn about. So, I mean, I know for myself, I kind of went down a rabbit hole for a minute where it was like, oh, I want that, and oh, I want that, and oh, I want that, and oh, I want that, you know, and, and only to later realize that those courses I was interested in re really weren't going to help my career very much at all. It was just something I was interested in, you know. So, uh, to, to answer your question directly, I, I the the... There, there's a, a great old Stephen Covey expression, begin with the end in mind, meaning think about where you want to end up. Like, you know, like listen to yourself play now and try to imagine what you want to be able to do at some point in the future. And then from there, start putting together a plan that encourages that and result, whatever that might might look like, which sounds counterintuitive to the conversation we've been, kind of, we've been having a very process oriented kind of a conversation. That it's like it's it's about the it's about the journey, not the destination. At the same time, you know, if you're in the middle of the ocean, uh, you know, and, and if your if your ship doesn't have a have have a rudder, then you're that then you're at the at the mercy of the current and the way and and the wind. You know, and, and, and the world is going to push you wherever it wants you to go, 
you, you know, so at some point, I think it's important to kind of say, well, I don't know how things are going to point up, end up, but I want to go this direction. You know, like, you know, because if you're, if you're headed for Europe in a ship, you don't want to wind up in Greenland because it's very cold there. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> you know, and oh, by the way, there's a city in, 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 in Greenland that, uh, that has, a, has a prison system that when you serve a prison sentence, you, you show up in the morning and you spend the day in jail and then you go home. And the reason why they do that is because if you don't serve the prison sentence, they turn you out into the wild. Where if you're turned out into the wild, you're eaten by polar bears. So, <laughs> so, so the moral of the story is don't wind up in Greenland. <laughs> That's set the rudder. Set your rudder. Uh, yeah. yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, so, alongside that question, um, one of our department award winners this year, um, Anna Wilson, asked this great question in my class the other day. So I'm going to ask you. She said, "What?" is something that is misunderstood by Berkeley guitar students. As far as I can tell, the amount of time that it takes to learn a piece of music so that you can perform it in front of a live audience uh, in a way that's like confident and effective. Um, I, there's, there are so many, uh, uh, I mean, I know so many guitar players who were really, really talented and have, a, have an awful lot of ability, but, you know, the, the, the younger ones sometimes seem to, often seem to underestimate, overestimate their own abilities in, 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 to be able to play a piece of music and underestimate the amount of time it takes to really sort of integrate it, you know, uh, it, you know, to a way where if somebody asks you to perform it live, you could just do it and it sounds right, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I just played in a classical guitar quartet and I used to do that kind of stuff a, a lot. And now I, you know, I do it a little less frequently and what we always said was like, you learn the part and then you play it a thousand times. Right. And then it's like, then it doesn't matter what's happening. You just, your hands will just go. Right. Yeah. That's right. interesting. Yeah. And, and be able to do that, uh, you know, because that's, for, for me, that's, that's one of the fights. If I'm learning a piece that's really technically challenging, uh, by the time I can do it, I'm, listen to it so many times that like it's it's uh, i'm either bored or uninterested or kind of over it so at that point then i it's it becomes a process of sort of reconnecting with why i love this piece why i took this work on in the first place and work on reminding myself of that so that i can continue to kind of push forward with this one thing so you know i mean if i um you know i think i said it said earlier one of one of my constant battles is a short attention span you know so that's <laughs> you know but uh you, you know it's like if, as soon as you realize you know anything like that about yourself you just find ways to cope with it too mm, that's great well you were saying about when you go and you play with the symphony or the pops about the rehearsal time you know you kind of just run those charts down and you're expected downbeat at the show to be able to play it, but that's because everybody's done their homework. Yes. 
you know, and really you're going there. And well, at least in my experience, but is you know sometimes a bad rehearsal is a great gig because it's just putting you on point on those things that you need right. to for the performance. But you're not there to work out the piece. That's you're, right. You know what I mean? And that's the other part of it is when you when you have that kind of practice um, schedule and and protocols that you're really you're get every, everyone who's showing up there is already has that piece together. Oh, that's right. Yeah, everybody's done. Everybody's done done their homework ahead of time, and it's just it's the, the the rehearsal process is simply it isn't me learning how to play my part, but us learning how to play our parts together. I think that's so important. I think it's so important. And then that's a big transition moment. Yes. Like it's not like we get a bunch of beers and we hang out and learn our parts together. It's like no, no, no. You come basically to perform the piece together at the rehearsal yes. and then talk about how you might want to change things or develop them. Yeah. But see, but see again, it's like, that's a t totally different culture than like, I don't know if any, if any of you saw the, uh, saw the documentary of the Beatles get back and you know, that's like the polar opposite end of the spectrum. They would come in with these sort of rough ideas, you know, and just through brute force of hanging out together for hours and hours and hours and hours, you know, these beautiful tunes would sort of emerge from all of that work, you know. Right, because they're writing together. And, and I, yeah. I'm in groups like that, too, and that's really fun. Yes. Uh, but then you have to do a lot of practice on your own, too, so that you well, have those chops together, too, right? And well, you, you have, have to have confidence. Yeah, you, well, you have to show up with ideas. Mm-hmm. No, and you have to show up with approaches that uh, you know that, that that encourage that kind of creativity, right? You, you know, so I mean that was you know that, that but but again, it's an entirely different. What's so cool about that is that how different that approach is, you know, uh, ver versus what a symphony orchestra does. But yet, it's equally effective, but gets very different results. That's right. And same thing with like you know like if you're if you know in 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 the uh, in the jazz world, um, you know if you if you get a call get called to go play a gig, uh, playing standards. If there's a if there's a rehearsal, it's only uh, it's only about who's gonna what tunes, what keys, what kind of feels. Is there anything specific? You know, a lot of times like the like the details are gonna be sort of brushed over. You, you know, to, to, to sort of set up a thing where it's like, okay, well, this is how we're going to approach this, you know. Um, and, and there's a lot of room for improvisation, but everybody is watching everybody else keenly. I saw Cheryl play, play a jazz gig, and that was one of the things that was really cool, was watching and listening for how closely everybody in the band was listening to each other, which would influence what the end result was. So everybody's kind of doing their thing, but they're also able to turn on a dime based on what they hear somebody else do, you, you know, which, you know, which is really, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's the greatest thing to watch. Cheryl, what's on your mind as we're coming to the end of the coffee today? That this was really, it was great to hang out with you, John, and talk about, you know, this process. And, and I think it's going to be great for all the students to really hear this because they, well, they see the end result, but to really know what goes into getting to that end result, that there's a process. And, and, um, so thanks for sharing all that, you know, you're, you're welcome. 
we are so lucky that we get to do to, that we get to be musicians. You know, it's like it's an amazing. You know, I I think about this a lot. Is that um, you know the way I've been able to live my life up to this point has been amazing, and to be able to bring other people along for that journey as well. Uh, I'm just, you know, like I'm. I feel like I'm living on a four-leaf clover, and I, I mean that. Like I I love my job, you know, on so many levels. So thank thank you for th- you know thank you guys for. You know, doing doing what you do. If you know, folks, if you don't know this, uh, Ian is you know does such a great job keeping you know like he, he's the guy under the hood of the of of the race car making the making the engine run smoothly, you know, and um, you know, sh- uh, you know, Cheryl and Kim are the ones that are sort of deciding, you know, what kind of tires to use on the race car, you know, like you know, picking the colors, picking picking the driver. Uh, picking the courses and the races and you know like the guitar department really does a great job uh, as a team it's it's really great to see so it makes my job much easier I'll tell you that so thank you you're welcome well thank you you make it easier you make it easy (laughs) you're just you're a great driver you know like (laughs) Um, Ian what about you what's on your mind yeah kind words John yeah Uh, it's it's a blast and it's also really cool for the students to see somebody with like such a broad spectrum of skills, like from a rock background to be doing the stuff that you're doing with the pops is just like, that's like, that's so Berkeley, you know? And it's so cool that like all this advice that you gave was all like just really helpful and down to earth. So. Oh, great. Great. Well, good. Well, I, I, you know, I, that, that, that's always the hope. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people, there's been a lot of people on my path who have been super helpful. So, you know, it's, it's, it's important to give back too. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you, John. Um, thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Ian. Coffee cheers to you and coffee cheers to you listening. And we'll see you next time on the next Coffee Talk.